welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. So we're fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Milan Gopal uh, to talk to us about vesicourouteric reflux disease in children. Uh, Milan's a pediatric urologist who works in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the United Kingdom. He trained in general pediatric surgery in Leeds. And uh, during his training time, he actually spent two years in Johannesburg at Chris Harney Baragwanath Hospital in South Africa. So Milan, thank you for joining us and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much for having me, Andrew. So, Milan, let's just kick off and maybe you can just explain to us what exactly vesicourouteric reflux is. So, vesicourouteric reflux is the abnormal backflow of urine from the bladder up to the kidney. I'm always interested about why these things develop and there's obviously a whole lot of things that can develop in the urinary system you know, why do we get reflux? What's sort of the pathophysiology behind it? Okay, so usually the vesicourouteric junction has a competence mechanism which prevents this from happening. And uh, it's, it's interesting how this was discovered. So one of the first documented evidences where reflux was documented was in the 1800s where a Italian surgeon, when he was doing a sur- uh, an operation, accidentally cut the ureter and found u- urine refluxing. And this is when the first was documented that reflux can happen. Subsequently, though, uh, Hugh Hampton Young from Baltimore did cadaver studies where he filled contrast into the bladders of cadavers and took x-rays mm-hmm. and, and stated that in the normal circumstance, reflux should not happen. So there was different mechanisms of what causes this mechanism, this anti-reflux mechanism. And there were two main theories uh, regarding this. One is the amount of intradetrusor tunnel that a ureter has to go through before opening into the bladder. Right, yeah. And you may have heard of Paquin's rule, which says that the ratio of the tunnel length to the diameter of the ureteric ratio should be at least four is to one to prevent reflux. Yes, yeah. And also a very important other fact is the anatomy and nature of the orifice itself. And a French surgeon called Lyon said that he, he classified different types of ureteric orifices from a normal slit-like or volcano type to a wide open golf hole type and as you went down the spectrum there was more of a chance for reflux for happening so basically it's tunnel length and ureteric orifice anatomy that prevents reflux from happening okay uh, milena are there certain ages where we find reflux to be more common yes uh, certainly it's more common in children now the prevalence of reflux in the population in adults is very difficult to find out. One of the main effects of reflux is urinary tract infection. And from epidemiological studies of children who present with UTIs, it's been found that the incidence of VUR in the population is probably one to two. 
percent, and this is highest in children, but it tends to get lower as the child ages. Okay, so if we discover something early, it doesn't mean it's going to persist forever. There's uh, a fair chance that it will improve over time. Yes, and that's a very important, that's a cornerstone of the management of reflux in children, is that there is a natural history of reflux getting better in children. All right. Milan, what's the difference between primary and secondary VUR? So primary VUR is usually referred to when VUR is happening as a result of a problem with the vesicoureteric junction per se and the mechanisms we spoke about earlier. Okay. When we say secondary, we, we often mean that there's something wrong distally. So either the bladder pressures are abnormally high and this drives urine up. And this can happen typically in spina bifida patients. Okay. Or there's a outflow problem. So the child is voiding against a higher pressure, and therefore, and there's a kind of pop-off of this pressure going up the ureters. And this, again, typically happens in posterior urethral valves. So I suppose it's always important for us to make sure there's no secondary causes when we look at kids who've got VUR. Definitely, especially in children. What are your thoughts on bottom-up versus top-down investigation for kids with suspected VUR? So the best line I've heard with regards to this, now just for your audience to understand, the top-down approach means that you start with a DMSA, and if the DMSA is showing changes in the kidney, it means that they go on to have the more invasive test, which is the MCUG. Okay. Bottom-up approach philosophy is look for reflux first with an MCUG, and if MCUG is showing reflux, then go on to do a DMSA to look for the effects of reflux, which is scarring. Right. The reflux is probably one of the most controversial areas in pediatric urology, but the more I think about reflux, I think reflux has probably been given too much importance and too much print space. Mm. I think there's there's two things that are important for the patient. One is the symptom of urinary tract infection, and the other is the long-term effect of kidney involvement in the form of scarring. Okay. Some children happen to have reflux. Some children happen not to have reflux. So with this philosophy, it actually lends itself well to a top-down approach. If you do a acute DMSA or a delayed DMSA, and an acute DMSA is actually looking for evidence of pyelonephritis, or a delayed DMSA after three to five months is looking for evidence of scarring, a top-down approach actually looks for children who are going to, who are at risk of scarring or kidney involvement, and then it targets the investigation in that group, looking for reflux in that group, so that you're going to treat that reflux to reduce the chance of scarring or symptoms. Okay, so we're saying that a lot of kids will have reflux, but essentially it's only those that have got secondary renal uh, complications such as scarring or urinary tract infections that actually we need to treat. And that's why a top-down approach is probably a, 
a more effective way of managing or looking at these kids. Milan, can you maybe just take us through what the different types of renal scintigraphy are and what the benefits of each are? Okay, so with specifically with regards to reflux investigations, there's mainly two that we do. One is the uh, DMSA scan, and for your audience, it stands for dimercactosuccinic acid, and there's a isotope which is labeled with technetium that essentially sticks to the proximal tubular cells. So the DMSA scan is the best test for parenchymal involvement. A acute to hot DMSA is one that's done within two weeks of a proven urinary tract infection, and it is the best test for pyelonephritis. Usually, though, the DMSA is done at a delayed time, which means somewhere between three to six months after an infection, and it's looking for the evidence of scarring where there'll be areas of no uptake on the DMSA. Now, the other isotope used is MAG-3. Now, MAG-3 is used much more commonly, as you're aware, for the diagnosis of obstruction in PUJ disease. But in reflux management, it has a specific role. There is a technique called an indirect MAG-3 scan done, and this is for diagnosing reflux in children who are potty trained. Okay. Prerequisites of doing an indirect MAG-3 means the child must be able to void on demand, which essentially means it has to be over three or four years old at least. Okay. So in this, the isotope is injected into the vein. It's taken up by the kidney, excreted into the bladder. And once it's in the bladder, then the child is asked to void, and then you see whether the reflux goes up. It, it uh, unlike MCG though, this diagnoses reflux, but you cannot grade reflux on an indirect micro. All right. So, I mean, you mentioned grading reflux. How do we grade VUR? So, the International Reflux Study Group classified reflux based on the findings of on MCGs from grade one, where the Contrast just enters the distal ureter. Grade 2, where it enters the pelvis, but the pelvis is not dilated. So these are low-grade refluxes or non-dilating refluxes. Then grade three to 5 are thought to be more important and have some degree of dilatation. So grade 3 would have dilatation of the pelvis. And grade 4 and grade 5 are divided based on peculiarities of the fornices and the calices, whether they're clubbed or not, and whether the ureter is tortuous. That goes to a grade five. Just as a point, though, there uh, for your listeners, there's also some controversy about this grading system, and this just shows how nothing in reflux management is straightforward. Yeah. If you think of... Uh, we started this talk by saying that reflux is a problem with the vesicourotric junction. So if that is the case, why are we so bothered about what's happening in the calices? We've spent a lot of time 
is it grade three, is it grade four, is it grade five, based on calisil clubbing and how if the fornices are sharp. But actually, the problem is at the mesycho-uretric junction. So in a way, you could make reflux into a binary. You have reflux or you don't have reflux rather than extensively grading it. I think the main value of grading has been to predict the chance of spontaneous resolution. So uh, reflux, whether you have a grade one or a grade five reflux, you can still get an infection. And that's important. What the patient wants to know and the parent wants to know is not is it grade one or grade five? They are worried whether their child gets an infection. So irrespective of the grade, you can still get infections. And also irrespective of the grade, you can still get scarring. In fact, scarring is well documented to develop even in the absence of reflux. There is, however, some evidence that the higher the grade of reflux, the more likely you are to get scarring. Okay, that's very interesting. So we're talking about some of the investigations for VUR, and obviously we've spoken about ultrasounds and nuclear studies and VCUs. What's the role of a pixistography, and what is a pixistography? So that's a relatively, relatively new test, and uh, it's not often done. It was described by somebody called Rubenstein in the States around 10, 15 years ago. Now, this apply, it stands for, PIC stands for positioning the installation of contrast. Now, we have, they have this, and we've all got this cohort of patients who have recurrent UTIs, who in all investigations are showing no evidence of reflux. So they would have had negative MCUGs, likely negative indirect MAC3s. They drink well, they void regularly, they're not constipated, but yet they get recurrent UTIs. So in this cohort of patients, what Rubinstein showed is that when you looked in with a cystoscope, you tended to find orifices that were not normal. So that comes back to what Leon had said, that the orifice anatomy can define the presence of reflux. So what they then did is they essentially showed that there was reflux by hanging contrast at a height of one meter to standardize it mm-hmm. and placing the tip of the cystoscope around a centimeter from the orifice. They described it as you could see the whole orifice in the screen of the cystoscope and then running contrast and then seeing if you have reflux. Now, the people who are against this procedure says that you can give anybody reflux this way because it's essentially like doing a retrograde urethrogram. And that's important because you should not obviously put the scope within the orifice. But with experience, you can almost predict which ones are going to be pick positive just by seeing how the orifice opens. And interestingly, the Andrew Kirsch from Atlanta, he showed that the higher the grade on the MCUG, the more wide open the orifice was likely to be. Now, in a way, this might sound like 
witchcraft or we're looking for a problem that's not there, but there is a clinical significance to this. Now, remember that these are children who are presenting with a problem that is recurrent infections, and nobody seems to be able to find a solution. We, in our own experience here at Newcastle, when we looked at the children that we performed the study on, which is not common, when we looked at the last 25 children who had the study on, so these are children with recurrent UTIs and all investigations showing no reflux, we found that 80% of them had pick-positive reflux. Now, if we find pick-positive reflux, we tend to treat endoscopically with deflux in the same sitting. And interestingly, 80% of these children then came back and said they were infection-free. Sure, that's very interesting data. It's amazing how high your pickup rates are. And it's obviously sort of highlighting an occult you know, yes. manifestation of VUR. Yes. So, I mean, there are other practical importances of this. Now, I, the, your listeners will may think that I'm actually contradicting myself in a way because a few minutes ago I was knocking VUR down saying that it's not important and here I am looking for occult reflux. <laughs> so this is the, one of the problems with reflux. But a, apart from this group of patients, what the other reason where I do a PIC histogram is when I'm seeing a child with unilateral reflux proven on an investigation that has come to my clinic because of recurrent UTIs. Now, rather than just doing deflux on the side that is known to have reflux, I now do a pig cystogram on the contralateral side. And this is because the problem that this child has is not reflux. The problem that this child have is, has is UTIs. So by treating one side reflux, if there is occult reflux on the other side and this child comes back with UTIs, from a parent's and patient's point of view, the child is exactly the same. I'll think that I've treated the reflux, but there is a incidence of contralateral reflux which I look for. And certainly the after the published literature on contralateral reflux developing was mainly for children who had reimplantations, right. and that was sometimes somewhere between 15 to 20 percent. That if you do a unilateral reimplantation, the incidence of developing contralateral reflux is 15 to 20 percent, and that may be significant if the children are presenting again endoscopically, it doesn't take us much longer at all just to check the other side and inject if required. Hmm. What are the different treatment options for VUR? Right. So by far the most important treatment option is conservative. And that's, as I said before, because there's a high chance of reflux resolving. And on that point, the higher one point that we did not mention is the chance of spontaneous resolution. This is where we said that the grading might help. The higher the grade, the less chance of spontaneous resolution. Recently, when the nephrologists in our hospital looked at our data and they looked at MCGs done in 400 kids who then later on happened to have an indirect MAG3 when they were 
So these were MCGs done at less than one year of age. Okay. They had indirect MAG3s done when they were five years old. Right. And they found that the children with grade uh, three to five reflux had a 90% chance of persistence of reflux on the indirect MAG3. Okay. Whereas those with lower grade reflux had almost a only a 10 to 15% chance of persistence of reflux. Right. So that highlights how most reflux will actually get better. So conservative treatment with or without antibiotics is probably the mainstay of reflux management in children. Now, the indications to do something for children is essentially two, which means that the child is having the symptom of infections, recurrent infections, okay. which breakthrough infections if they're still on antibiotics, or documented evidence that the kidney is suffering, either in the form of recurrent pyelonephritis or worsening scarring. In this in this cohort of group, in this cohort of patients, you can't manage them conservatively because they're getting worse, in which case we have to offer some kind of surgical intervention. Okay. What are the different treatment options? So uh, let's start from the other extreme then. So the other extreme is actually the open reimplantation. And uh, this has historical significance actually for pediatric surgery because it's arguably correct that the whole specialty of pediatric urology was based on this operation. So there has been a myriad of operations described for managing vesicouretic reflux. Right. And all of them have very good success rates. They were divided based on whether they were intravesicle, extravesicle, or a combination of the two. But they all had this you know, success rate approaching 95% or greater. Okay. Now... So in the 80s, uh, there was, this is when deflux, I mean, endoscopic correction of reflux was first described. And it was actually first described by somebody from Germany called Matauschek, but he didn't seem to jump into the limelight much. And it was Prem Puri and O'Donnell from Dublin who really popularized it. Okay. Now, they described a method where by injecting a substance, and they used initially Teflon, hence the term STING, which stands for subureteric Teflon injection, under the ureteric orifice. And their theory was that it lengthened the intradetrusor length of the ureter, but it probably also had effect by changing the orifice anatomy from a more hydrodistensible open one to a more slit-like one. From then on, there's been different types of materials. You know, the, the technique has essentially stayed the same, but different types of materials from Teflon to collagen to microplastic have been used. The most popular one today is a substance called deflux, which is a combination of dextranomer and hyaluronic acid. 
And this is injected in a similar way. Now, the other thing that has changed injection technique, in the original sting publications, the success rate of a single sting was noted to be somewhere around 70% on a single injection. Now, the main advantage of this endoscopic correction was that it was a very short procedure, no incisions, and it also allowed you to inject again if required. And people would inject a second time or even a third time before committing a child to an open reimplantation. Right. Subsequently, Andrew Kirsch from Atlanta described two other techniques, and one was what he described the HIT technique, which is a hydro-ureter intra-ureteric therapy where rather than just under the ureteric orifice, he would inject it into the in, into the distal ureter in the intradetrusor part of it. Okay. He then went on to extend that further to a technique called the double hit technique. And this is the technique that I use myself now, where it's a combination of a hit injection as well as a subureteric injection. So you would start with the hit first and then do the sting second, as it were. Yes. Yes, and you must do it in that order because if you do the sting first, then you won't be able to get into the ureter to do the hit. Yeah. The importance of this, though, is that in Andrew Kirsch's published results, and this is with double hit, where he did post-operative MCUGs in all patients, his reported success rate was 93%. Is that across all grades or just the lower grades? Uh, mostly for lower grades, but he was saying that even for grade 5 reflux, where traditionally it was thought as you could not do an endoscopic correction for this, he was getting up to 80% success on that. Okay. But for the lower grades, that's up to grade 4, he was publishing 93%. Now, very few people have been able to document that level of success, but the importance of that is that at 93%, it's it's giving a strong competition to open reimplantation. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, and much less invasive. Yes. What's your feeling about uh, laparoscopic, either transfer cycle or transabdominal uh, treatment for VUR? Okay, so. It's interesting that over the last few years at the pediatric urology conferences, this seems to be getting a resurgence now laparoscopically. And this is because, mainly because of some, which was initially anecdotal, but seems to be com more common now of late obstruction happening after deflux injections. Yeah. My usual practice after I do a deflux injection is to keep the child on prophylactic antibiotics if they are. I do an ultrasound at two months, and I see them in clinic at three months. If the child has remained well, and the ultrasound shows no evidence of obstruction, I then give them a trial of antibiotics. Okay. There have been some children, though, who have, not in my practice yet, but who people have reported, who have come back one or two years later with pain or infections and ultrasound shows hydrourethronephrosis 
and this is late obstruction caused by deflux. So there is a move to do we need to do delayed ultrasounds in all children who have had deflux. This is not common practice yet, but the more these reports are published or presented, the more people are going to be wary about deflux. But certainly I wouldn't be ringing any alarm bells yet. So because of this, though, there seems to be a resurgence for the for laparoscopic surgery. Now, you said about intravesicle versus extravesicle laparoscopic reimplants. Now, a intravesicle laparoscopic reimplantation with standard laparoscopic instrumentation is extremely difficult to do. Uh, it's usually done as a pneumovesicoscopic approach where a port is put, put into the bladder and it's filled with air. And then you put your laparoscopic instruments with ports into the bladder. Now, because we are going standing near the head end of the patients and looking down, to do a type of intravesical repair, which usually means a Cohen type of repair, you almost have to look back on yourself to work and dissect the ureter as we do for open surgery. Now, this can be done and has been done, but certainly this is one operation which would be much more easier done if you have a robot. Yeah. A much easier way of doing a laparoscopic reimplantation is a extravesical reimplantation, and this is the one that seems to be more, much more published and popularized. The standard extravesical reimplantation is a leash Gregoire op operation, and it involves, as your listeners know, making a, a detrusor on the back of the detrusor up to the, where the ureter joins the bladder, and then stitching the ureter into that detrusorotomy. And essentially what it does is it is making the intra-detrusor course of the ureter longer, therefore uh, improving reflux. Can I just quickly take you back to the post-sting or hit uh, urinary obstruction? Um, are you guys considering to put in double J-stints at that stage, or would you just consider doing a full reimplantation if they developed a hydronephrosis or hydrouretinephrosis post-sting or hit? I've had some children who, after a double hit, have come back relatively soon, as in almost the next day, with some amount of pain. And when you do do an ultrasound that early, I think inevitably you'll see some amount of dilatation. Not a great, some amount of dilatation, but in my experience, in those few children, they all get better. So on the delayed ultrasound at three months, it, it resolves. Right. Now, the group of patients that I described were ones who presented later, and those who were much higher-grade chronic obstructions. And, and uh, it should not be underestimated because some of the patients presented had loss of kidney function as well. Now... If I was faced with that situation, I would probably try a stent first okay. just to see how, uh, obviously, we, the stent has to come out at some time. So I would put a stent to let the system recover, but then I would be very 
careful that after the stent came out, if there was any recurrence of the dilatation, that I would I would go very quickly for an open reimplantation. All right, Milan. We've spoken a lot about the different sort of techniques, and obviously, conservative is ideal if if it's the right treatment for that particular patient. When would you decide between doing a, an endoscopic sting or double hit versus doing, um, uh, for example, a trostrigonal Cohen reimplantation? So the the number of reimplantations that we do has gone down dramatically. So even I, I've mentioned before that the specialty of pediatric urology was developed because of reimplantation. It's surprising how few reimplantations I do now. The most of the reimplantations that I do are either as part of a bladder augmentation or they are for VUJ obstructions where I am usually tapering the ureter and then reimplanting it. For pure reflux, the number of in, uh, reimplantations done is extremely few, and I would say less than one to two a year would be done. These two would be those who have failed endoscopic correction of reflux. In which, in this situation, though, I, my primary choice is to go for a laparoscopic extravesical reimplant. I do counsel the patients, though that when I take them for an endoscopic correction, I said most probably we will be able to do this procedure. But if I find that the orifice anatomy or location is so abnormal, for example, a very laterally situated ureter with very little detrusor backing and that's gaping wide open, you can almost predict that your endoscopic correction is not going to work in which case I would probably have a lower threshold for going for an op- uh, a reimplantation. The, the other group that we did not mention is uh, duplex ureters. Right. Now, this was also a, a little bit controversial because uh, certainly you mentioned uh, that some of my training was in Leeds, and my old boss there would never do a endoscopic correction for reflux into the lower pole of a duplex system, saying that the published rates for success were 50%, which is like tossing a coin. Yeah. But I think double hit technique, I have had success in that group as well. However, one of the things I tell the parents that if the orifices are very close together or if there is a large ureterocele that is obscuring the view of the lower pole ureter, again, in this group, I would probably not do a endoscopic correction, but I would do a duplex reimplantation, which would usually be an open procedure. Milan, tell me, you mentioned you would generally do a, a reimplant either for a bladder augmentation or a bladder extrophy case or on the other side if it was a failed um, double hit sort of patient what's the role of ureteric stents in the surgical correction group of patients do you routinely leave a stent do you put a stent in 
a pre-mobilization of the ureter, whether it's laparoscopic or open? Or what, what is the role of stents for these patients? Open urea implantations for refluxing ureters, I think there is an argument that you can do them even without a stent. If I was leaving a stent, I would probably just put an external stent because I don't need it stented for a long time. Right. I was doing reimplantation, Alish Gregoire reimplantation laparoscopically because I am not opening the bladder, I'm not touching the urethric orifice. In those cases, they would have no stent at all. Okay, now thanks for clarifying that. So, Benan, just to briefly summarize, so obviously we see reflux very commonly in young children, but the ones we want to treat are obviously those with recurrent urinary tract infections as well as those who've got scarring of their kidneys. And then obviously the first choice would be to try a double hit on those patients, and if that fails, then to do a surgical correction. What is the role for prophylactic antibiotics in VUR? People always talk about the river trial. What's your feeling about prophylactic antibiotics in, in VUR patients? So I told you that VUR was controversial, didn't I? <laughs> so, so again, it shows that nothing in VUR is without controversy. Now, uh, antibiotics seems to make sense because you want to reduce the symptom of febrile urinary tract infection in children while allowing them to outgrow their reflux. So it seemed to make sense. But you know, with antibiotic resistance increasing in the world, this is something that we have to actually think about a little bit seriously. Is there actually a benefit from giving prophylactic antibiotics. And one of the best conducted studies recently was the RIVER trial, which stands, if I'm correct, for randomized intervention in children with BUR. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this divided basically a group of children who presented with their first or second febrile UTI into with antibiotics or without antibiotics. Uh, the findings were important. If you had prophylactic antibiotics or you did not have prophylactic antibiotics, you had the children with prophylactic antibiotics had less incidence of febrile UTIs, which is intuitively going to be correct. But importantly, though, both groups had the same incidence of scarring. So regardless of the antibiotics, the actual scarring incidence was equivocal despite, yes. the, despite the infection rates. Yes, yes. So it made a symptomatic improvement, but uh, whether it's going to have long-term benefits, who, who we, we are yet to see. That's interesting. Now, that I, I do still give prophylactic antibiotics to my patients because I'm because I'm uh, because I'm treating the symptom of febrile UTI. There is no, uh, but you know, there is no uh, nothing wrong in a somebody else's practice who says that 
I don't give prophylactic antibiotics and I will only treat UTIs as and when they happen. Okay. Now, another important thing from that point of view, it's as long as febrile, as long as urinary tract infections are picked up and treated quickly, there is the risk of scarring to the kidney should be low. So it's been found that delays in treatment are the main cause for scarring to develop. So you really need to then base it on your local environment and access to healthcare and education and pick up rates. Yeah. So if you had some, if you had easy a population that had very easy access to getting their urine tested and treated promptly, you could probably safely go down that path without antibiotics. Okay. So speaking about urinary tract infections. Is there any role for circumcision in kids with uh, VUR? Uh, yes, I, I would say there is. Now, a good paper that your readers should uh, read came in Archives of Diseases of Childhood, and uh, well, the lead author was somebody called Singh Grewal, and they had some good figures that I often quote. So they said if you want to prevent, do a circumcision to prevent a urinary tract infection, you have to do 111 circumcisions to prevent one UTI. So it's not a very effective maneuver. Right. However, those with high-grade UTIs or more complex urological problems, the number of uh, circumcisions you needed to do to stop a UTI goes down to four. So therefore, in that group, so children, for example, with high-grade reflux or with conditions like valves, in that group, there's a def- definite advantage in doing a circumcision. Yeah, as you say, it's, it does seem to be a worthwhile thing in kids that do have renal tract anomalies as opposed yes. to the normal population. And VUR obviously is included in that category of patients. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, just to summarize, I can just, you know, so so my practice is if a child comes with a febrile UTI who has had its investigations and known to have reflux, I usually counsel them and regarding antibiotics. I put them on antibiotics. And what I do is, because what's important to me is UTI, the symptom of UTI, and the long-term effect of scarring, I don't then look again to see if the child has outgrown reflux. So once they're on antibiotics, when do you stop antibiotics? Now, long time ago, it was 12 years of age, and then 7, and then 5. And when you think of it, these are all numbers just picked out of the air. What I tend to do is I look for a physiological milestone and that is the milestone of potty training. Okay. So when a child is potty trained, I'm assuming that their bladder has developed to the extent it's able to store an empty urine normally. So if a child is on antibiotics and is well, when they are potty trained, if they are drinking well, voiding regularly, and not constipated, I stop the antibiotics. I don't look to see if they've outgrown their reflux. Right. So if they go on to have a, if they have a UTI after stopping the antibiotics, 
I then investigate, that's the reason why I investigate for persistent reflux, in which the case they'll be old enough because they're potty trained to have an indirect MAG3 scan done. It's very important, though, that I only stop the antibiotics if they're drinking well, voiding properly, and not constipated. One of the things that we did not touch on is the great significance and importance of bladder bowel dysfunction in causing UTIs in children. So if children are having untreated constipation or ongoing bladder dysfunction, then until they've been sorted out, I don't stop the antibiotics. On the other hand, it's important that I don't chase reflux. Right. What I'm doing is looking at the symptom. So another group of children might, when they stop their antibiotics, have no infections. So what I tell them is, you may still have some reflux. I know you used to have grade 3 reflux. And that may have gone down to grade 2 or grade 1, or it may be 0. You'd have to put your child through a test to prove it. But I'm not doing that test because your child has no problems. Right, yeah. Another way of looking at it is if, you, if a child is not on antibiotics and remains well, and you do a test and you find reflux, what are you going to do? Are you going to put them through an operation? Now, the other group of patients who are, have breakthrough infections while they're on prophylactic antibiotics, and they, on their own merit, will need some kind of treatment. And then the third group of patients is Recurrent infections, all tests negative, query occult reflux, they go for a pig sister then. And then you would obviously treat them on merits when you did the yeah. cystography, right? So the important takeaway message that apart from the group with occult reflux, where I'm specifically looking for it because they've got UTIs, I don't chase reflux. Now this is Again, this is, it depends on how aggressive or conservative you are. And certainly, the data that I gave before about our nephrology department doing indirect MAG3s on all those children that had MCUG-proven reflux shows that this is a group of professionals who were chasing reflux. Right. My counterpart is that many of those children who were five years old and who still have reflux will still be on antibiotics. And they've been on antibiotics possibly for five years now. Many of them will be completely well. And what I ask them is, if you stop the antibiotics and they remained well, why should we treat that reflux? Absolutely, yeah. So, so to prevent that kind of, it's always more difficult to stop the reflux uh, antibiotics if somebody has shown you, yes, they still have reflux. But I'm usually able to convince the parents that why don't we stop the antibiotics? If your child remains well, everybody's happy. If your child gets a urinary tract infection, as long as it's picked up quickly and treated quickly, your child will not suffer any kidney damage. If that happens, treat quickly. Get back on prophylactic antibiotics, let me know, and then we'll do an endoscopic correction. So, Because that, that cohort has proven to me that they need to have the reflux treated. On the other hand, if 
if they're on prophylactic antibiotics and you decide if it's your practice that I will stop when they're potty trained, then you're letting your patients self-select them, those that need surgery and those that don't. Yeah, so then we're going back to that group of patients that's actually symptomatic, that needs intervention. Yes. Yes. No, excellent, Milan. I think, you know, we're all grateful for you walking us through this very controversial and sometimes confusing topic of vesicourouteric reflux disease. And uh, we appreciate your your thoughts and the way you put it together so clearly for us. Thank you so much. And we wish you all the best for your future practice. And we'll chat to you soon. Thank you very much, Andrew. And thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.